I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 5th, 2017. Coming up, we'll discuss the unattended consequences and the politics of biofuels with David Diganaro, and he's an agriculture policy expert with the National Wildlife Federation. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Black holes are a favorite topic of scientists and science fiction writers. There have been many observations supporting the existence of black holes, and it is likely that most of the black holes were formed as the remnants of supernova explosions of stars much more massive than our sun. But astronomers have also hypothesized that the first black holes may have been formed less than a second after the Big Bang, hundreds of millions of years before the first stars formed. A new theory by UCLA scientists suggests that these primordial black holes could have formed directly from the high-energy field that clumped after the rapid expansion after the Big Bang, and some of those growing clumps of energy became dense enough to become black holes. These primordial black holes could account for some or all of the universe's mysterious dark matter and might have seeded the formation of supermassive black holes that exist at the center of galaxies. The new theory proposes that primordial black holes might also help create many of the heavier elements found in nature. In their paper published in the journal Physical Letter Reviews, the researchers suggest that it's possible to search for these primordial black holes using astronomical observations. One method involves measuring the very tiny changes in a star's brightness that result from the gravitational effects of a primordial black hole passing between Earth and that star. Earlier this year, U.S. and Japanese astronomers published a paper on their discovery of one star in a nearby galaxy that brightened and dimmed precisely as if a primordial black hole was passing in front of it. Speaking of discoveries, sometimes you make these scientific discoveries at the most unexpected moments. And that's happened recently for a construction crew in Thornton, Colorado. On August 25th, the crew was digging into the ground as part of a project to build a new fire and police substation for the city of Thornton. So while scooping dirt out of the ground, an on-site geotechnical engineer, who happens to be an expert on soil conditions, noticed something weird embedded in the soil that was being dug up. The construction crew suspected that they had found something important. Two days later, a paleontologist confirmed just how important the discovery was. The construction crew discovered a dinosaur bone. And on the same day, Joe Sertich, a dinosaur curator at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science, determined that the dinosaur bones were from a triceratops. Triceratops were plant-eating dinosaurs that appeared at the end of the Cretaceous period, about 65 million years ago. The dinosaurs roamed the Earth for only a few million years before the Great Extinction wiped out almost all of the dinosaurs and large life on Earth. 
The Triceratops had a distinctive face with three horns, which is why you have probably seen an artist's conception of it many times, depicted uh, that kind of depiction of dinosaurs. 68 million years ago, the Triceratops roamed the area that is now the Colorado Front Range. At the time, this area had a warm and humid climate with a lush landscape to sustain plant-eating dinosaurs like the Triceratops. This surprising discovery at a Thornton construction site has produced one of the most complete Cretaceous period fossils ever found on the Front Range. Teams from the construction company, as well as the museum in the city of Thornton, are continuing to excavate those fossils. What they have unearthed so far includes brow horns, part of the skull that surrounds the brain, parts of the snout, parts of the frill, which is the shield behind its head, as well as the lower jaw break, parts of the neck, vertebrae, and lots of ribs. You see there's a lot left to be unearthed. But you can take a peek at these triceratop bones at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. For details and updates, go to dmns.org. And there's something else you can find at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. Scientists and comedy together say what? So you think scientists are boring, incapable of cracking jokes, including about their own work? Well, a group of scientists aims to prove you wrong. This Friday night, you can cheer on Colorado scientists turned comedians as they attempt stand-up comedy for the first time and wax hilarious about the unique nuances of their work. This rare comedy night for science fans will get you laughing with and at some of the biggest brains in town. Among the performers will be a geologist, a chemical engineer, a nurse, a traffic engineer, an accountant, and a data engineer, all turned into comedians, at least for the night. Andrew Curtis Fourlines, host of Talk Showdown at the Voodoo Comedy Playhouse, will be host. The headliner will be Dr. Kevin Fitzgerald. He's a nationally touring comedian, a practicing veterinarian, and the star of Animal Planet's Emergency Vets. The event starts at 7.30. It's for adults age 18 or older. Also on the science calendar this week, tomorrow night, September 6th, journalist Michael Kodas will speak about his new book, Megafire, The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. The talk will be held at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax Avenue in Denver starting at 7 o'clock. In Megafire, Kodas, who lives in Boulder, travels to the most dangerous and remote wilderness areas and to the backyards of people faced with these environmental disasters. He looks at the heart of this phenomenon and witnesses firsthand the heroic efforts of the firefighters and scientists racing against time to tame these deadly flames. From Colorado to California, China to Canada, Megafire describes the impact of these fires around the earth. For more info about the event, go to tatteredcover.com. And we'll post a link on the howonearth.org website to an interview that KGNU News Director Maeve Conran had with CODIS last Thursday before he spoke at the Boulder Bookstore.
You're listening to KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. The Environmental Protection Agency has proposed maintaining its record support for biofuels from food and feed crops such as corn and soy. But what seemed like a near-perfect green solution to reducing fossil fuel emissions from vehicles just a decade or so ago has all but lost its green promise. In fact, this big federal expansion of biofuels support has led to the conversion of millions of acres of habitat-rich grasslands into croplands. And what's more, the benefits of biofuels have shown to be negligible, at best, relative to fossil fuel as a strategy to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Just last week, the EPA ended a public comment period leading up to its decision to continue to support the biofuels as part of the so-called Renewable Fuel Standard, or scale back its support. Several environmental organizations, along with former Colorado, uh, California Congressman Henry Waxman, have been urging the EPA and Congress to reduce mandates for biofuels. So joining us on the line from Washington, D.C., is David DiGennaro. He's an agriculture policy specialist at the National Wildlife Federation. David, thanks for joining us on the show. Good morning. How are you? I'm great. How are you doing? Doing very well, thank you. Good. So let's just jump right in to um, give us more of a sense of why and when and how this renewable fuel standard was passed back in, well, more than a decade ago. Sure. Uh, well, the first version of it was passed in 2005 in a much uh, smaller scale. Um, and that was really back in the Bush years uh, trying to get at energy independence. Oil back then was much more expensive. We were fighting. Uh, the wars in the Middle East, and there was this sense of urgency to try and uh, get American fuels uh, back in the fuel supply. So this uh, drive for corn ethanol began then, uh, but then in 2007, Congress greatly expanded the mandate to try and incorporate some greenhouse gas benefits and, and to try and move us to better fuels beyond corn and soy-based fuels. So that 2007 law greatly expanded the, the role of ethanol in our fuel supply. Um, uh, today we're using about 10% of our gasoline is ethanol, mostly made from corn, and then there's additional soy-based biodiesel that um, is in, in use as well. And so it looked so promising back then environmentally, I mean, as you say, also from an energy-independent standpoint. Um, maybe just outline what were some of the promises from a scientific and, and ecological standpoint even that, that looked pretty good then. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, they, they called this policy the renewable fuel standard. So the hope was that these would be fuels that were renewable, that unlike fossil fuels could be grown and replaced year after year, and that would also provide greenhouse gas benefits, so help us reduce our climate change impacts. But in reality, we found that producing all of this corn for this ethanol is actually much more destructive than we thought, and it um, converts wildlife habitat and natural areas into this monoculture, industrial corn production, uses a lot of water in places that can't afford to be using uh, more water for irrigation and agriculture, like Colorado. Um, and those greenhouse gas benefits have not materialized. The real promise of the law was those more advanced next generation fuels that are made from things other than corn and soybeans like uh, grasses or wood waste or even algae, things like that. Uh, those things have a much less intensive footprint. They use much less energy to produce, they use much less water, and they can be grown sustainably. 
but the focus of the law thus far has really been on those first-generation corn and soy-based fuels um, that have just wreaked havoc on the environment. Yeah, and I want to get more to the cellulosic ones and sort of why they hadn't really t- taken off yet and why they could. But first, I was really struck by, um, I think it was in the press release last week with you guys and former Congressman Henry Waxman, where he said, we're concerned that most biofuels are a curse worse than the disease that it's been that bad, including from a climate emissions standpoint. What what some of the data show on what the differences are? Because I think it's a pretty mixed bag, or does it look pretty universally the case that even the this generation, the corn-soy biofuel production, is actually worse from a greenhouse gas standpoint? Yeah, the results are definitely very mixed. Um, depending on what kind of modeling assumptions you use and, and how you, uh, you know, formulate the data. But, you know, even the EPA, when it was doing its initial assessment of the law back in 2010, uh, you know, and then following up with the National Academies of Science agreeing that these first-generation fuels at best um, break even in greenhouse gas benefits, um, in the future they assumed that they would take on new technology and that farmers could do different conservation practices that would help mitigate their impacts. Um, but as they're currently produced, these gases are worse than, than uh, gasoline, uh, at, and at the very best, they're breaking even. But along with that has come all of this, these unintended consequences, such as um, habitat loss and land conversion. Um, as you mentioned, millions of acres have been lost over the last decade. Um, at the University of Wisconsin did a, a nation, nationwide study that showed 7.3 million acres have been lost. That's an area the size of Massachusetts. Wow. Um, and Colorado ranks seventh on the list of states for habitat loss. Uh, they've, you, you guys lost about 311,000 acres. Uh, that's an area larger than Rocky Mountain National Park. Well, and that so, was largely grasslands that had been under what's one of these USDA programs or something? Mostly grasslands. Um, some of them came from conservation programs through USDA, but a lot of them were rangelands, uh, other areas that just hadn't been profitable for farming either because uh, you know these areas were drier areas or um, rockier soils or you know they're just not the best farmland out there. But um, once this law went into effect, it really drove up the prices of corn uh, because of all the demand for for ethanol. You know, now uh, about 40% of our corn crop goes to ethanol production rather than food or feed. Um, so that, that big new demand really drove up prices to historic levels. So farmers decided it was profitable now to turn these lands into growing corn and soybeans. And so that's what they did. Um, and so now, I think it's worth noting that economically it actually has been a boon to many growers, right? Or had been. It was for yeah, it was for a number of years. It, this really did feed a boom in the agricultural sector, of, uh, but now that the production has leveled off, all of these new acres have brought been brought into production. The supply has definitely caught up with demand, and we actually have too much uh, corn production at this point, and so prices have gone back down. And so now is not a particularly good time for farmers, and uh, they're clamoring for more of these farm conservation programs so that they can maybe take some of that land back out of production because uh, maybe it's not as as uh, profitable as it, as it had been in those boom years. 
You mentioned the first generation and so-called second generation crops. Just um, tease those out a bit. I know these are EPA terms, right? Yeah, well, corn ethanol has been around for a long time. Uh, Ford's Model T car back in the turn of the 20th century was able to run on corn ethanol. So um, we've known how to make that for a very long time. The next generation are these other fuels that are made from things that are not made from the easy sugars in corn, but things that come from the, the tough parts of the plants, so grasses or tree stalks, uh, um, plant stalks or tree, wood, you know, those things that are harder to break down, uh, but they are much more potent in their energy production. Um, even things like algae, algae can produce oils that are very similar to gasoline. Uh, so those are the, really the things that we're trying to move into, um, and we have the technology has been developing very slowly, but because the emphasis in the early years of the renewable fuel standard was on corn ethanol and getting that up to scale, their, their investment to get these next generation fuels going has not materialized, and the corn ethanol has really eaten up all of the space in the, in the biofuels industry. So for those who might be just jumping in, you're listening to KGN News Science Show, How on Earth. I'm Susan Moran, and we're talking here with David DiGennaro. He's an agriculture policy specialist at the National Wildlife Federation and talking about the trade-offs of biofuels, some of the downsides in particular, um, and the huge challenges of tackling climate change without destroying landscapes and habitat. So jump right in, if you would, to like where we are at this moment now EPA has just ended this public comment period, as I was alluding to. What does that mean? What might, what, what is the state now, and what would the change be according to EPA, and what do you guys want it to be? Well, the law requires um, that every year the EPA has to set the actual volumes that, um, that blenders of, of gasoline have to meet. So the refiners are given, refining companies are given a specific target that they have to meet for they have to put X amount of gallons of ethanol into the gasoline supply. Um, the number for corn ethanol is set at 15 billion gallons. Uh, that, again, that's about 10% of our current fuel use. And it's not supposed to get any higher under the law as we see it now. Um, but the EPA does have the authority to lower that number if they see environmental harm associated with the policy. And so that's what the case that we've been making to EPA for a number of years. And, you know, these impacts have been mounting and the science behind them has been expanding and we, we have a much better understanding of what the law has meant. And so it's time for EPA to recognize that these impacts are real and that they are causing really dire consequences to the landscape and to water quality and for them to use that knowledge to lower the levels that they're requiring under the law. So, um, so it would be to lower the overall volume of the mix, of the portion from corn and soy, in particular, ethanol. Correct. That's what we'd like to see. Less emphasis on the corn and soybeans while still allowing some, some room for growth in those better, more sustainable fuels. So um, no surprise, science and politics aren't necessarily in sync. Mm -hmm. And now it seems, um, well, what is your sense of what the Trump administration is doing? There's certainly been a lot of lobbying of, say, uh, Iowa Senator uh, Chuck Grassley, who just so happens to be on two of the committees that are investigating Trump. And there seems to be a lot of behind-the-scenes lobbying going on there. What's, what's your sense of that? Well, as you know, uh, corn and ethanol 
play a very important role in Iowa, which has an outsized role in the political process. Um, and so when President Trump was was campaigning in Iowa, he promised that ethanol would be would do well under the Trump administration. And uh, so that's generally what we've seen so far. He's made public statements since then as president uh, supporting the renewable fuel standard and continuing to support corn ethanol. Uh, so we don't expect to see much change coming out of this EPA. Um, and so it's really time for Congress to, to make some changes. It's they, they passed the law in the beginning in 2007. Uh, it's time for them to recognize that the law has, has not worked as intended. That's why C- Congressman Waxman was on that phone call with uh, us last week to demonstrate that um, sometimes things don't work out as we plan. No law is perfect, and it's time to, to go in and make those necessary changes. And so that's what the National Wildlife Federation would like to see is some meaning, meaningful common sense reforms to the law to make it work better. Um, and it's a bit of an uphill battle. Uh, as you mentioned, there are some in Congress who would like to double down on the current policy and actually push for more corn ethanol. They're trying to get, instead of 10% of our fuel supply, get the, bump that up to 15%. Um, so that's what we're trying to fight against, those headwinds, and try to make progress in the opposite direction. And it's one thing to look at the overall data, like you said, the loss of grasslands and rangelands. It's another, I'm sure, when you're making the case to... Congress folks, um, but also just to the public, to, to listeners, is if you could zoom in on a couple specific examples of how the consequence, the unintended or intended consequences are playing out on farms and with species in particular and habitat. Sure. Um, well, this, again, this we talk about habitat and habitat for what is a good question. Well, one species that's been greatly impacted is the monarch butterfly. A lot of its migration pathway through the center part of the country is is on these open spaces, and they need those open spaces uh, in order to make their great migration all the way north to Canada and then back down to Mexico. Um, but they've seen a tremendous loss of their habitat. You know, corn and soybean fields don't provide any habitat for for monarchs or other pollinators. It's kind of like um, a bluegrass lawn in our backyards, but in a much bigger scale. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, A lot of the conversion happened in what's called the Prairie Pothole Region, which is in the Dakotas and Minnesota. Um, It's this beautiful landscape dotted with lots of uh, small uh, temporary lakes and ponds. And and that's what's called the duck factory of America. More than 60% of America's duck population is is bred and reared in that part of the country. And that has seen devastating losses of, of wetlands and nearby grasslands. So if you like to hunt ducks anywhere in the country or, or see them passing by, um, this habitat loss is really important there. And then another impact has been on water quality. And the poster child for this has been Lake Erie. The last number of years have seen ever-increasing algal blooms every mm-hmm. summer. Um, it's going on right now. And this is where giant masses of algae fed by the runoff from farms choke, choke our streams and our lakes um, and it, it's gotten so bad in Lake Erie that in 2014, Toledo, Ohio, had to shut down its drinking water supply for three days because the toxic algae was producing um, it was, uh, harmful toxins that were people had you know couldn't drink at the water. Right, and that's largely so from it, fertilizer runoff, right? Exactly. This the more you grow corn and soybeans, the more it runs off into our streams, um, pesticides, fertilizers, um, and this fertilizer promotes the growth of these massive algae blooms. 
Powerful. Um, we just have another minute. I want to leave you with any message you want to uh, leave with listeners as to how they can get more information or what folks can do. Yeah, well, you should definitely weigh in with your Congress people. There, there is energy and momentum in Congress to to try and make some reforms happen. So, uh, weighing in with them and letting them know that this is important to you is is the best thing that you can do. You can uh, find more information on our website, um, nwf.org, and then we also you can follow us on Twitter, which is at EcoFuelNWF. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. That was David DiGennaro. He's an agriculture policy specialist with the National Wildlife Federation. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Alejandro Soto. This week's show was produced by I, Susan Moran, and it was engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions from Alejandro Soto. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Pat Metheny. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU Comments Line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, this KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Susan Moran.